Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Three Roll Estate Craft Rum Distillery, crafting premium rum from their own Louisiana sugarcane. Three Roll is cane to glass. From Nola Pizza in the Nola Brewing Tap Room on Chapatula Street in New Orleans, we're out to lunch with Peter Rashidi, Tulane University's A.B. Freeman School of Business professor and director of the award-winning Birkin Road Reports. It's business, New Orleans style. Hi, I'm Peter Rashidi. Welcome to Out to Lunch. A couple of decades ago, New Orleans' business landscape was bleak. The economic decline that began with the oil bust of the 70s was followed by political corruption, poor education, and, and high crime rates. By the time we got to the 1990s, the continually diminishing range of career opportunities here had led to a mass exodus of 25 to 35 year olds. In 2002, a group of enterprising New Orleanians had the idea that encouraging entrepreneurship might be a way to help turn the city's fortunes around. They founded a business incubator and they called it Idea Village. As you may know, it worked. When the post-Hurricane Katrina influx of people and capital started pouring into New Orleans, Idea Village was the right place at the right time. Today, people who grew up here don't have to leave. People with innovative ideas move here to start businesses, establish businesses, relocate here, and Idea Village is a proven slingshot where entrepreneurs turn business plans into business. Two of these recent businesses are called Claimly and Cluey Consumer. Their founders, Tobias Patch and Mary Claire Menard, are joining me for lunch today. Tobias and Mary Claire, welcomed out to lunch. Thanks Thank for having us. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Also joining, joining us is Corey James. He's that program director of Idea Village. Corey, welcomed out to lunch. Thank you so much. Tobias, let's start with Claimly. Uh, one of the first pieces of advice they give you at Idea Village is make sure your business is solving a problem that actually exists. Now, hundreds of thousands of people in Louisiana will wholeheartedly agree that Claimly succeeds on that score. Claimly is a mobile and web-based app that helps property owners more successfully navigate and participate in the insurance claim and property restoration process. The first and most obvious question that comes to mind, given that my insurance company already has an online claims process, is how do I use Claimly or to insert myself into all of that? Or, or is your intended market insurance companies who you hope will buy this software? That's a great question. Um, so in the insurance claims process, it's really the uh, responsibility of the insured person or the insured business or entity to uh, move their claim through from start to finish. So the insurance companies have um, their own applications and their own uh, kind of proprietary flow of work that they use that's more for running their business and keeping their efficiencies in place than it is for a person to successfully navigate the process of handling their claim. Um, and so Claimly is really designed to aid those people who've been affected and help them do things in a way that helps kind of simplify everything that they're going through. And our long-term vision is that we would love to be able to uh, kind of choreograph a little bit of a dance between the insurance company software and ours so that it becomes even more easy for both parties and hopefully takes a little bit of this stress in an already really stressful situation out. Mary Claire, Cluey Consumer addresses an issue 
we hear a lot about today, and that is the social, political, and environmental ramifications of where we spend money. At one time, nobody who bought cheap clothes or expensive iPhones cared about the working conditions of the people who made them. For most people under 30, those days are gone. Cluey Consumer clues people in on the background information about products they buy, both online and in the real world. As I understand it, I create a personal online profile that prioritizes my preferences for products according to three criteria, uh, people impact, planet impact, and political contributions. Then, when I search online, I can find which products conform to my preferences. If, if Cluey Consumer takes off, companies will be beating down your door to get onto the platform and get a good rating. How will you handle that? I mean, presumably you can't take companies' claims at face value. Is there a way AI could do all of this, or are you going to have to hire humans to curate Cluey Consumer? Yeah, well, it's a very exciting time, and I love that you mentioned that that day is no more the case for consumers under 30. Um, so that's the big bet that we're betting on, that this will take off, and when that day comes and we need to scale from, you know, right now thousands of brands to hundreds of thousands of brands on our platform, the goal is to do a combination of both uh, human-validated research along with AI, machine learning to ingest more and more of that data. Um, but again, uh, we won't be, you know, to your point, taking the claims directly sourced from the companies themselves, but instead from third-party, best-in-class uh, data sources. So we aggregate and translate that data to make it palatable and digestible to the everyday person. You know, on the investing side, all that is uh, uh, called ESG, environmental, Correct. social, and governance. So uh, I'm glad there's a I'm glad there's this end of it too. If we didn't end just on the in Wall Street, that's exactly, great. exactly. You can't open you can't open the Wall Street Journal today without seeing the term ESG and recognizing that there's possibly even a bigger momentum for this on the consumer side is what we're ultimately betting on and translating the world of ESG to consumers. Now, Corey, Idea Village is continuing to play a vital role incubating new businesses in New Orleans, but rather than talk about what goes on at Idea Village in a general sense, let's look at a couple of case studies, uh, namely Claimly and Cluey Consumer. There's a selection process by which new companies are admitted to the Idea Village incubator. Now, other than thinking their business concepts were sound, what you heard from Tobias about Claimly and Mary Claire about Cluey Consumer made them worthy of admittance to the Idea Village. What was it that uh, gave them a yes? Yeah, that's a great question, and we have fairly straightforward selection criteria uh, for entering the accelerator program. So um, it's product, team, traction, and market. So is this you know uh, a kind of pro product that's solving a real pressing sort of pain point um, for individuals, for consumers, or for businesses? Um, and then team, is this the right sort of composition of talent, experience, expertise uh, to essentially you know, lead the effort or lead the charge in solving those kind of problems. Um, and then, uh, so traction is essentially, it, can you prove that this is, there's an appetite for what you're working on? Now, does that mean they have revenues already or? No, not necessarily. It's a it's sort of a common misconception uh, is that there's a lot of ways to demonstrate traction, right? So there's revenue, that's a fairly straightforward one. There's monthly active users, there's number of downloads, there's all sorts of different ways that demonstrate, you know, there's different kinds of demand 
um, for what it is that you're building. And then finally, of course, you know, it's the size of the market. So what's the size of the opportunity? Like it, no matter how smart someone is, if they're trying to launch a blockbuster right now, it's probably not going to be a kind of great outcome. Um, <laughs> and so, so what is the size of whatever it is that you're working on? And, and, and is it large enough to be sort of worthwhile and a, a big kind of a big project to take on? I've always wanted to know with Idea Village, you get them out the door. To, are they responsible for coming back or are you following up or? Yeah. So it's our job to make it sort of fun and attractive for people to, to stick around. So we do a lot of things around alumni. It's an area we're investing in a lot currently, too. Um, and it's just around, you know, how do we continue to provide value to the most important stakeholders that we come across or that we work with? The most ideal outcome is they come back as mentors. Um, we work with a shockingly low, like, jerks per capita. Like, these are incredibly kind, <laughs> interesting, smart people. That's an uh, economic term you rarely hear, but good. Yeah, that's, that's a, the clean version, too. So, uh, um, so, you know, that's the ideal outcome is we see that cycle of uh, founders kind of going through uh, about a four-month process of, of sort of diving in and accelerating um, and then kind of coming back to help the next generation. So, And Tobias, and I'm sure uh, Corey brought this up when you first went in the door, but one of the things... I worry about in your business is that it seems so lumpy. You know, a hurricane comes and then you've got a, an onslaught of claims, uh, or even the cash flow itself is kind of lumpy. How do you do that? Do you a hurricane hits and then do you hire a bunch of people? How does it work? A vast majority of what we're doing is is backed through you know AI and learning. So long term, it'll get more and more computer driven. Um, but also, it's there's a lot of algorithms that can help people work through some question and answer scenarios about their claim. And it really is not very human heavy in regards to um, what we have to put in to make it work. Now, the, the lumpy side of it, I think in the world of hurricanes, that would be the case. However, this isn't just you know, hurricane-based. So you have natural disasters that have been, I mean, literally every single month, uh, there's a natural disaster of some kind all year long, whether it's a tornado or a hailstorm or a, tor you know, a flood, mudslide earthquake, volcano, um, you know, pick your, pick your poison as it were. I hate to say this, but climate change is good for your business, right? It's one of those things that, uh, it's like, you don't want to say it, but it is a reality. Like our business model does tend to, uh, do well based off of that reality. So, uh, you never like to see anyone go through this, but the truth is you really can't keep it from happening. And so we've come to kind of like a, agnostic mentality about the fact that like we're not creating these issues these are happening and our job is to try and make it as simple for someone who's going through what we consider to be absolute hell uh, to get through it and get out on the other side as unscathed as possible i promise i was just kidding with you but it's <laughs> very clear um the other part I was just thinking about is corporations. I'm getting back to ESG here. I'm sorry, that's my area. But there's a lot con of connection. There here. really is. I know this. <laughs> Even though it might not. Seem I can't believe you two were just drinking <laughs> downstairs when we put you on. This is really good. And uh, what about the, t the term we worry about, like greenwashing? Mm. Now, what is that, and how do you handle it? Yeah. So you know, with the rise of the conscious consumer, um, marketing arms of organizations have 
recognize that that's a huge opportunity, particularly when you consider that oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, the consumer who's interested in, you know, purchasing more purposefully, um, you know, has a, a edu- like college educated background, usually higher income, and therefore that spending opportunity to buy more because they think a product is more sustainable or they think it's more ethical, um, you know, is a huge sales opportunity. Um, and of the 300 plus companies that were surveyed in the last year by Bain Bain and Company um, of large multinational Fortune 1000s, 95% have said that sustainability is a top priority for them on their agenda in the next year. And one of the biggest reasons for that change, obviously for all the other reasons, shareholder pressure, et cetera, but is for new opportunities for revenue. So they see this as a money-making opportunity just as much as it is a, we need to do better for the world. Um, But with that, of course, comes this term greenwashing. And so we, uh, you know, cut through the BS, so to speak, of greenwashing. It's like they're Um, coal miners, but there's always a picture of showing the employees planting a garden or something. Yes, Exactly. So there's a lot of terminology that, you know, has no standardization behind it. It doesn't have any sort of um, actually accredited system or rating system behind it, but it's just a popular buzzword. So sustainability is one. Um, Green is another. Ethical is another. Unless it has like an actual certification behind it, we're not counting that into how we rate. And one, the other part that seems, uh, I don't know if it's more difficult, but it's certainly more interesting is you've got, you know, save the earth and, and that, and we understand that. But you've got how companies contribute politically. Is that yeah. open information? Yeah, so this is um, publicly available, federally regulated information. Um, You know, the United States government, as part of our campaign finance laws, collects, aggregates, and regulates this information. Um, And it's regulated on both sides, meaning the side from the company donating the money and also from the campaigns disclosing what money they're receiving from who. Um, So what we've done is um, we've displayed this information in an apolitical fashion. We're not scoring it and saying buy from this brand because they donate to this side or this brand because they donate to this side. We're just saying here's the information. Do with it as you wish. Um, What's interesting about that piece is that it actually acts as a doorway in a lot of ways to getting people to start a conversation about cluey and conscious consumerism in general. Um, When you look at the U.S. consumer population compared to, say, Europe, where the concepts of conscious consumerism and more environmentally friendly purchasing has been around for a much longer time, the U.S. is a bit more of a politically motivated (laughs) consumer population, uh, for better or for worse. So that's always a great... um, kind of doorway into talking about other issues, where your money goes, and what's behind those uh, products that you're buying. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Peter Raschuti. I'm talking with Mary Claire Menard, founder of social and political information shopping guide, Cluey Consumer, Corey James from Idea Village, and Tobias Patch, founder of Claimly, an app that uh, helps you navigate your insurance claim. Now, I'm going to ask you both the same question, just because in doing the research, it wasn't quite clear to me. I love what you're doing, but I can't quite figure out who your customers are, like where their revenue is going to come. I'll start with Tobias. What, is it the insurance company itself? Is it the person that needs a claim? It's the, so it's the actual person who's filing the insurance claim and also the vendors who are supporting them. So our, our application is designed to help get the, you know, the homeowner or business owner in the right kind of framework to handle their claim. But 
in order to handle repairing damage, you have to connect with other professionals. And so there's a secondary part of this that's uh, connecting them with pros who can actually help them complete the repairs or complete the processes that they need to to finalize their claim. And so there's connection between that, and that's where some of our revenue comes from as well. Um, you're gonna, it sounds like you're going to make a lot of attorneys angry on those billboards and TV. Is that... It's not, it's not really been our initial um, expectation. So there's a lot of there's in, in insurance, right? So there's a ton of data out there about how people interact in their insurance claim. And if you have 100 insurance claims, about 10 of those claims are going to actively pursue their claim. And only three of those 100 claims are going to pursue it through like an attorney or a public adjuster. And a lot of times, um, that number, as sad as it is, should increase. There should be more people dealing with their claims. And so our expectation is is that people engaging and really beginning to know what it is that they're owed and how they're supposed to be taken care of are going to reach out to attorneys more often. They're going to reach out to public adjusters more often because they recognize that they're, they, they understand more, right? Like knowledge is power. And so Claimly is designed to provide them that knowledge so that they can choose a better path. And a lot of times that ends up with an attorney. I agree with that line. Knowledge is power. Yeah, true that. <laughs> yeah. And I want to ask you the same question. Obviously, Corey thinks you guys have big futures ahead of you. Where do you get paid? Yeah, that is. Is the, that something uh, that's going to come up during the class, or it, it certainly <laughs> will. It's certainly something we're you know working on validating right now. But um, the way that Cluey works is similar to a lot of uh, you know the model, at least, is similar to many tech companies that you're seeing coming out of Silicon Valley, which is where there's a user base of users who are using our technical tools, um, but we are not monetizing directly from those users. Um, instead, those users supply us with something else that's super valuable, which is data. Um, and this can, of course, be like a tricky topic because companies have certainly crossed the line on what I would consider ethical use of consumer data. Um, but what we want to do is be an ethical steward of collecting that consumer data and actually using it as a feedback loop to power brands to improve their practices for better. So if toilet paper brand X versus toilet paper brand Y recognizes that they're losing 10,000 users uh, you know, a year in terms of brand loyalty on sales because of these certain issues, we can provide them with that data, they pay us for that data, and um, you know, they can then prioritize how they wanna change some of their material sourcing practices or their emission cutting practices or their waste reduction, et cetera. And, and, uh, and Corey, I've got a question for you that uh, mainly people ask me in town all the time is you've got Idea Village, you have Propeller, you've got Fund 17, you have uh, Goldman Sachs, Babson's uh, 10,000 businesses. Do they, do they overlap or are there certain kinds of business that need to go in one of those four spots? So our community is incredibly fortunate to have so many great um, you know, entrepreneurial support organizations or, or groups of people that are super smart um, and well-resourced to basically support founders in their various sort of stages and manifestations. And over about, I'd say, uh, the last decade or so, the Idea Village has increasingly focused on supporting founders who are specifically building highly scalable, you know, repeatable business models, um, most of the time tech-enabled, um, but are from their foundations designed uh, for fast growth. Um, that core distinction really guides a lot of decisions early on that have downstream consequences or, or sort of downstream 
um, repercussions. And so um, we make a ton of referrals to uh, other entrepreneurial support organizations in town that basically uh, have different areas of specialization or specialty. And um, I've basically been fortunate to kind of design our organization around supporting those really high growth um, most of the time venture profile type of companies. Anyone, these two folks, um, they could definitely scale. There's no question about that. And then you get situations where do they want to scale? I guess uh, I guess you don't force them into it. Do you just tell them if it's available or how does that work? Yeah. So, it, it, you know, our later stage accelerator is a bit of a choose your own adventure uh, type of experience. Um, and ultimately, if you're not fully committed to doing something that's very high growth, um, it becomes quite apparent because the decisions that you have to make uh, require a different appetite for risk, require sort of different types of funding mechanisms um, and different types of structures really some from the ground up, um, legally and otherwise, like operationally too. Um, so ultimately it's, it's kind of like a self-evident conclusion as the founder kind of progresses through those types of decisions of, okay, am I going to, um, you know, optimize for having this serve 10,000 people versus 1,000, um, or 10 million people versus 1,000. Uh, and, and as they're thinking through uh, those core decisions, we you know, try our best to basically be a really sort of uh, supporting voice. And ultimately, they, they're the best determinants of whether or not we do a good job of that. Uh, but <laughs> in general. Good job. Okay, yeah. there you go. There's a and they're not paying us to say that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a paid spokesperson. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, Mary Claire, what about situations like the ones we were talking about early is sort of you sort of get, but you're driving down this the the street here and you um, you still have a a non EV car. Um, Got to get gas. I mean, you could say all oil companies are you know certainly tough for the environment. What what do you are some do you say well some are better than others? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a realist and I'm not going to pretend that we can exist in a world where all of a sudden we're going to stop consuming because every consumable purchase you have is going to have an impact, um, positive and negative, positive in that it creates jobs, negative potentially in that it has some sort of environmental impact. So there's a lot to weigh in those considerations. But what I would say when it comes to that particular hypothetical you presented is there are, of course, differences even amongst companies such as oil and gas companies. A good example is that Exxon, just in the last year, it was a huge news story where two of the board members' board seats were replaced by an activist uh, set of investors and shareholders in their board meetings because Exxon wasn't making any plans in their future for renewable energies, whereas the other oil and gas companies were because they see the writing on the wall. They know that, okay, fossil fuels are going to be part of the past. We should start investing in newer renewable energy. So that's a perfect example where Exxon became a laggard and companies like Shell became a leader, more so to speak, within that industry. Now, granted, of course, it still has a, not the best environmental footprint, um, but you know there are differences within that lesser evils, so to speak. Uh, Tobias, I, I, I saw this on uh, the research we were looking up. I just just had to laugh, really. Is one of the one of the areas you had to handle was uh, Lake Charles, which is like the most unlucky place in the history of uh, histories. Like over and over and over unlucky. Yeah. You had yeah. two hurricanes, a flood, a freeze. Uh, um, what, what capacity were you in then when you were helping those folks out? So uh, I had a restoration company and also uh, worked as a building consultant for attorneys as an expert. And my restoration company uh, was turnkey, so we would help people from like 
they showed back up at their home and we met them there and we figured out the problems together, got them out of their house, uh, out of their business and took them from zero to 100 and dealt with everything in between. Uh, and then as a, an expert for the attorneys, uh, I, I make the joke often like I'm a little toe biased, right? About, <laughs> about, about my, uh, oh, I see a bumper sticker. Yeah. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, about my expertise in regards to documenting a claim in a way that depicts everything that happened. And so we work uh, with attorneys to really protect the, the realities of what happened to these properties so that they could get what they were owed to repair them. And so kind of in both formats, we had a, a, an exact expertise in doing the work as well as uh, helping negotiate and helping kind of depict what the damages were for attorneys as experts. How long is it before some big monster company comes in and takes you out or competes at a, at a level you're not going to be able to comp uh, compete at? Uh, what about Tobias? What do you think? Um, we haven't, so we haven't really identified in our space any direct competitors to what we're doing. There's people that are doing like small versions of what we're doing um, that don't seem to show any vision for going in a different direction. Uh, I guess our biggest potential for that would be, you know, big insurance companies trying to press on us and push on us um, to say that we're, we're doing something uh, that's not allowed or not legal in some way, which uh, we've been very careful in the legal preparation for what we're doing to make sure that we're in line there. But I kind of feel like that would be a good problem to have because it validates uh, <laughs> the reality of what we're here for, which is to help the insured person or business deal with their claim properly. Um, so I'd also stick Mary Claire on them. To That's put right. them on them. You answered both, both my questions. Now I can give them both to Mary Claire. What, what about, uh, you know, a big, particularly on your side, I can see a, a a big consumer, like an advertising company or such, uh, coming for you. What do you think? Yeah, so um, two things on the on the competitor side. I think that the window of opportunity is open. So really, the way that Cluey can succeed is by hitting the pedal to the metal and going full force to become the trusted player, the go-to resource in this space for consumers. Um, so much so that companies would look silly to try and combat them. So a good example is Glassdoor. Um, for any of your listeners who might be familiar, Glassdoor is a employee rating site um, where people can talk honestly and openly about their experiences working at a particular company. Um, you know, and you could imagine, I'm sure at some point in Glassdoor's upcoming that they recognize, oh, is this going to be something where companies are going to say, we can't do this or we can't do that. But imagine how terrible that would look on that company if, you know, Glassdoor could put out a opinion ad or op-ed in the New York Times to say, you know, company X tried to shut us down because they don't want people to know how terrible it is to work there. Um, so I think all <laughs> in all, a good chief marketing officer and PR uh, person at whatever company would probably advise their leadership against doing something like that. Um, but then on the competitor side, like I said, I mean, we really have to put the pedal to the metal to be the go-to player. You're on the first space. mover here. To some extent, there yep. are some, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. When I first started on Cluey, I would hear about, you know, some incumbent players, some players who maybe started a little too early and then petered out. Um, but now it's getting to a point to where there's a VC-backed player that I'm learning about almost every two weeks. And that's a huge sign of opportunity and growth. So the way that you accelerate the growth and the potential to capture that market is 
through capital and through capturing those users. So, you know, we recognize that that's a huge part of our growth uh, trajectory is through raising that and Can deploying you get that capital. Have you been able to get it or you're out pitching it? Or? We are, you know, we're, we're backed by uh, a VC fund here in New Orleans as well. Um, so we're, we're getting there, but you know, it's definitely, definitely open to continuing to raise and um, continuing to deploy that capital to attract our consumers and people who want this information. Corey, I know this must be kind of an odd question when you bring new people and new companies in, but in the back of your mind, are you, are you thinking about exit strategy? Are you talking to them about that or does just that seem ridiculous? Yeah, it's it's ultimately, you know, something that every founder who's ever fundraised ultimately gets asked. You need to have some liquidity event to actually get the return uh, on the money that's put into the company. So if you plan on fundraising, you, you sort of have to have an answer to that. Um, so we ask that question, of course, but you know, what sort of is the kind of fun thing to be along uh, the ride for is essentially, you know, startups are compared to like jumping off of a cliff and building the plane on the way down. Um, <laughs> and like getting the plane uh, in working condition is, is like a win, right? And, um, and so the ultimate sort of like longer journey uh, is something that I know you had Patrick Comer right. uh, great and yeah, and Scott and Matt and sort of great people who who are now giving back to the ecosystem, um, who can speak well to sort of those like final stages of the company. Um, but really, we're just we just try to be a really trusted partner along the way and just be as helpful as we possibly can. So um, we're fortunate to really be at the sort of ground stage or the, the you know the the kind of foundation level um, and. It's a it's a target rich environment for problem solvers, right? Uh, so we, we just sort of try to be along for the ride and help as much as we can. Well, after those three um, acquisitions, people kept asking me, "Is this good for the city or bad for the city and the eco entrepreneurial ecosystem?" Ultimately, it's really good, isn't it? That these companies have yeah, uh, yeah have money good, now. It's a good question, um, and I think that you know should be thought of. Uh, and sort of debated to you know to whatever degree people are interested in that. And I think um, one thing that's worth really noting, in, in my opinion at least, is that startups are very non-extractive forms of economic development. Um, like quite literally, you know, some energy sort of industries are literally taking um, resources and extracting them. Um, and then you know, startups are really sort of purely generative. Uh, like they're building a lot of times from scratch, and ideally not in a sort of um, way that is uh, taking advantage of individuals or sort of people. So they're incredibly dynamic, like vehicles through which different things can be accomplished. So you can have a really inclusive culture um, in your company and that can spread sort of beyond uh, the, the kind of, you know, parameters of your company. Um, but the, the longer term vision, I think, of what we're sort of like aiming at or working towards is like just producing a new group of civic leaders around uh, around the, the city and around the community. Like if you spend time with these founders, one, they're unbelievable problem solvers. Like they're incredibly sharp individuals and that's merit to, to itself. Um, but the other thing that needs to be said in the same breath is they're incredible people. Um, they're people that you want in a position of deploying and allocating resources. Uh, and making decisions like, you know, um, how much am I able to, to like, provide uh, for my employees and how much am I able to give back to the community. Um, and all of it really stems from this place of generosity and creativity, which is really fun. 
And I think something just to add on that, you know, I'm from here originally, but I lived away. I went away for undergrad and I moved to New York after that and San Francisco after that. And I had always wanted to come back home, but you know, the longer and longer that I was away and seeing the opportunities that were elsewhere, the harder and harder it became to recognize those opportunities here. And I think seeing the momentum that's come out of both Idea Village and the successful exits that's happened in the last year were all the positive signals that I wanted to see. Plus, of course, the acceleration of remote work with COVID, but like all the positive signals that not only myself, but my partner, who's also not from here, uh, needed to see to relocate and reposition here. And so I think that's like a huge testament to what Corey and John and the entire Idea Village community have built. Um, and it really just makes makes it a lot easier and makes me so excited to get to come home and, and build in a city that I love. And if it's okay, I'd love to just put a couple hard numbers on, uh, on to kind of contextualize that too. So, so we now have about 120 to 130 mentors. So these are subject matter experts that give their time, energy, expertise to early stage founders. Um, and they're basically about 80% based locally and about 20% are like non-local New Orleanians. So when we run these programs, sometimes we'll have you know, fund, manager, fund managers in um, New York or product designers in London. And the sort of glue that ties everyone together is they just care so deeply about the community and seeing people here thrive. Um, so Mary Claire is an amazing case study as is Tobias and just sort of uh, founders' abilities to like believe in that same mission and to come here and build and really move the needle and make a difference. And it's interesting um, bringing that up because I'm not from here, right? And I came here to help the people from New Orleans and the surrounding communities work and recover from the recent you know, Hurricane Ida that came. And this wasn't on my radar at that time. I was working on this you know, separately, but um, just to like very quickly it became so clear in meeting John and Corey and other people in the Idea Village process that they were very genuine and very serious about what it was they were doing here in New Orleans. And that from somebody who's built multiple businesses, I've had one successful exit and realizing like what they were doing to help people uh, is very, very attractive as a founder. Uh, and it's something that I think anybody who's considering like where they could position themselves to take advantage of opportunity, like New Orleans is clearly starting to show itself that, that that's something they're serious about. And it's just the best and most fun city to start a business in. So. Yeah. Touche. <laughs> that too. Anyone can have a great idea. The difference between entrepreneurs and the rest of us is entrepreneurs actually do something about that great idea. If you're brave enough to make the leap from talk to action, even with all the confidence and perseverance you can muster, there are a million bridges to cross before you can get anywhere near a million dollars in revenue. Entrepreneurship is not for the faint of heart. Mary Claire and Tobias, you're both great examples of entrepreneurs with unique ideas and the talent, courage, and perseverance to see them through. And Corey, the homepage of Idea Village's website declares, we believe in the future of an exceptional New Orleans, and we're all with you on that. Corey, Mary Claire, and Tobias, thank you all for taking the time to join me today on Out to Lunch. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Yeah, this is great to be here. Thanks. I have a face that was made for radio. so <laughs> <laughs> And an appetite for pizza. There's a, we edited the show to fit into the time slot here on WWNO. You can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about Idea Village, Claimly, 
and cluey consumer by listening to the Out to Lunch podcast. You can find and subscribe to the Out to Lunch podcast on your podcast app and on our website, itsneworleans.com. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos from the show on itsneworleans.com and on our Out to Lunch social media. These photos were taken today by Aster Morgan. You can find more of Aster's photos at astermorgan.com. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com and WWNO 89.9 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris, our technical producer is Eric Merle, and our researcher is Maggie Mendel. I'm Peter Raschuti. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the lunch table for more business New Orleans style on Out to Lunch. Out to Lunch was recorded live over lunch at the NOLA Brewing Tap Room, 3001 Chapatula Street, open seven days a week. NOLA Brewing Tap Room has a wide variety of craft beers and authentic hand-tossed New York-style city pizza by NOLA Pizza. More information is at nolabrewing.com. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Three Roll Estate Craft Rum Distillery, crafting premium rum from their own Louisiana sugarcane. Three Roll is cane to glass. And by Basics Swimming Gym and Basics Underneath Fine Lingerie. And by the It's New Orleans Happy Hour podcast. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com. 